and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Mabel Romero, Assistant Professor of Law at the Northern Illinois University College of Law and Ipsa Dixit co-host. We will discuss her draft article, Prosecutors and Police, an Unholy Union. So, uh, podcaster podcasted, welcome to the show, Mabel. Thanks so much. It's, I have to admit, a different experience being on the other end of the questions. Okay. 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 So you sent me this draft earlier today and I was like, what the fuck, right? Merger (laughs) of police and prosecutor unions. Okay. Number one, what? Number two, what, what? Like prosecutor union? What do you, what is this? <laughs> I appreciate that we can all admit here that this is a giant what the fuck moment. You know, I'm like, okay, maybe this is like Ipsy Dixit after dark here saying that. But, you know, it, prosecutors generally have not historically involved themselves in labor unions. There have been prosecutorial associations, prosecutorial like employment, um, you know, affiliations and the like, but they have yet really to commonly uh, formally unionize. And what you see recently in response to reformist prosecutors, specifically in St. Louis, um, is prosecutors who are joining into formalized labor unions with the police, which I find absolutely terrifying given that, you know, police unions have really been these, you know, strong walls against um, criminal justice reform. I, the, the last thing I want to see is prosecutors really hooking up in, in that sort of um, environment and in that sort of alliance with police even more strongly than they are now. Okay, so obviously I want to come back to learn more about what's going on in St. Louis and sort of the reaction to the press progressive prosecutor uh, movement more more generally. But I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about the kind of nature and history of of police unions. I mean, sort of like when did the police start to sort of professionalize or unionize in in this way? Okay, so. You know, the history of police unions is actually a really interesting thing. And, um, you know, you've got to look back at the history of just public sector unions in the first place. Um, Public sector unions have a little bit of a different footing and a little bit of a different background than private sector unions. So what you see is that in the U.S., private sector unions started developing, you know, in the 1800s or so, Um, whereas public sector unions they only, you know, really start coming into their own into, you know, the 1900s. And one of the first public sector unions out there was actually um, a police union, um, you know, or at least a police union, a bunch of police trying to unionize. They were actually attempting to join this larger union called the American Federation of Labor um, in the early 1900s, in 1919, actually. And this was in Massachusetts, specifically in Boston. And, you know, these police back then, they actually had a long list of very understandable problems <laughs> with their bosses and with the management. And, you know, the, you know, the governor actually um, controlled policing in Boston back then. It was set up in such a way that, you know, they wouldn't take their grievances to the mayor, it would go to the governor. Um, so, you know, the, these policemen back then, 
They worked really long hours. They had really terrible pay. Um, sometimes they weren't even allowed to leave the city. So they had these really strange restrictions on their movement. Um, they, and they enjoyed no, well, not enjoyed, but they were burdened with no personal time off, essentially. Um, so they tried to join the American Federation of Labor at that point um, to try to get better working conditions, like, you know, a normal union would. And these officers all went on strike. Um, a little over 70% of them just didn't show up to work on one day. Um, and what you see is that <laughs> the governor back then, Calvin Coolidge, um, ended up really disparaging them, saying, hey, you guys are traitors, you guys are communists, um, throwing a label of being Bolshevists at them or something like that. Um, and doing that really set back public sentiment not just on police unions, but also public sector unions in the first place, you know, and to some extent, I feel like you see that as sort of a trope in the United States from then on, you know, sort of these sorts of red scare tactics, you know, like, oh, this is Bolshevism, this is communism, and, you know, the populace freaks out, and they're very upset about it. Um, so this strike that the police went on in September of 1919 in Boston really set back um, a lot of the momentum that public sector unions had going. Um, and it really, you know, you really don't see police unions or a lot of like public sector unions coming into their own until the 1970s after that. So it really did slow the, the momentum. Um, and what you see is that, you know, police themselves haven't even been unionizing for all that long. So you we're still trying to figure out to some extent, you know, how much power should these unions have? To what extent should be, they be able to um, really influence public policy? Um, because they're relatively young compared to private sector unions. Yeah, so it's a really interesting dynamic, it seems like, in the sense that, you know, at at one point in time, sort of pre-war and part of post-war America, private unions were kind of the dominant if not the only sort of unionized labor force in the United States. But today, to the extent we have unionized labor forces still, the public sector unions are far and away, at least by my understanding, the largest segment of the unionized labor force in in America. So I, mean, I wonder, what do you think about the relationship between public sector unions and private sector unions, or more specifically, like, what do you think about the relationship between police unions and other kinds of public sector unions? I mean, is there something unique about police unions and the way that they work and the way that they kind of came into existence and govern or manage themselves that in any way makes them different from other kinds of unions? I mean, I think what's really interesting is that when you look at sort of the purpose of the police and just, you know, the, the history of policing period. Um, you know, you don't necessarily think of police as necessarily being worker friendly <laughs> in, in that sense, you know, police officers, you know, they enjoy much more robust protections already um, than, you know, their, their private sector sort of counterparts. Um, so, you know, they, they have much more in the way of freedoms of exercising first amendment rights. Um, they're shielded from retaliation in the workplace and everything. They enjoy much more, much nicer protections that way, much more robust protections. But even, you know, just historically, what you see is that, you know, in the eight, early 1800s, when you see private sector, private sector workers trying to unionize, if informally, you know, they, they didn't necessarily, you know, have sort of the same, you know, labor movement vocabulary back then. Um, 
you know, they tried to get together and protest and picket for better wages and stuff like that, they would actually get harassed by the police and they would get prosecuted for conspiracy, actually. Um, so what you saw was that the police were actually very opposed to, you know, private sector union activity. Um, you know, the police also, you know, they worked together to undermine the gains that, you know, formerly enslaved um Black people um, made after um, the Civil War in particular. So what I find really interesting about police and unionizing is that historically the police have been rather at odds with, um, you know, those populations that we might um, think of as being more aligned with labor unions in that sense. Um, So, you know, there's this alignment between law enforcement and, you know, management and everything um, against poor laborers. And, you know, in that sense, I think the the role of the police union is very different from, you know, a normal union. It's always been, the police have always been oppositional to workers and their concerns, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing that struck me really quite strongly in your paper was that like one of the initial arguments against the police being able to unionize and specifically being able to unionize in in the context of the AFL was that, you know, it's like, well, the job of the police is to be around to break up the strikes when the laborers start agitating. <laughs> and it's like, and to some extent, I, that, that's still true, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, they're here to like bash heads together, break up the, break up these protests. They're here to protect property. They're here to protect business. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a, a very sort of different footing that police unions start of because of that history. Mm-hmm. Well, so I wonder if as well, you could talk a little bit about the relationship between police unionization and accountability. Because I mean, I think it's no secret that there's some tension there. And I think that obviously, as you point out in your paper, that historical tensions in that area ought to inform how we think about sort of prospective efforts toward unionization by police and especially police in concert with prosecutors. And that's what's sort of problematic, I think, about you know, the police union in particular, because, you know, like I was saying earlier, it, their unionization efforts really did start with sort of the concerns that you would see in probably any other labor union, you know, poor wages, poor working conditions, poor hours and the like. Um, but to some extent, what you see is that these police unions and trying to improve working conditions and trying to you know, I'd argue, make the job a bit easier. Um, they, they really form this bulwark against um, criminal justice reform in that they offer this shield against accountability. You know, they end up lobbying for um, different protections for police officers, even when it comes to police officers who use deadly force or excessive force. Um, you know, pol- these police officers who do something wrong are able to hide behind their union and they have the full support of their union um, oftentimes. So I think a lot of communities have started to see, well, not even started, but have gotten to know police unions rather, you know, they're not necessarily, um, you know, these organizations fight against poverty and fighting for better wages for everyone else, you know, as like brothers in labor or something like that so much as, um, you know, this sort of, um, gang almost of you know, police officers who are there to support each other and there to um, 
really give each other cover for their misdeeds. And that's a bit of the problem that I have when it comes to prosecutors also joining into police unions um, or even forming more close relationships with them. I don't want to see even more cover for um, prosecutors who engage in misconduct. There already is enough as it is. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about the kind of historical relationship between prosecutors and police, like sort of how how is that relationship developed over time? I mean, were they always closely connected or have there been kind of tensions or differences or sort of different incentives in relation to prosecutors and police? I mean, that's what's sort of interesting about um, the relationship between the two. And in the paper, I, I cite to this, um, you know, DOJ newsletter um, from the 1970s, um, bemoaning the fact that prosecutors and police do not work well together and that they're not very close. So I think there used to be much more of a, it appears to me at least, there used to be much more of a sort of hands-off and distant relationship between the two. Um, the police oftentimes are seen as being kind of these working class folks, whereas prosecutors were, you know, of, of course, overeducated attorneys like like you and me, I guess. Um, and because of that, they were rather, you know, opposed to each other class-wise and everything and had very different backgrounds. Um, but I think as you saw, you'd see in like the 1930s and everything, what with the rise of organized crime um, and just with the rise of more federal and state crimes, you know, you'd see penal codes proliferate and kind of, you know, the different things that were outlawed, you know, as crimes kind of multiplied, like, you know, like triples from Star Trek, where it's like, you can't get them to stop. Um, there was an opportunity for both of these organizations, both police and prosecutors to work together um, to really, I think, build each other's power at that point. Um, and you start seeing them, you know, coming closer together and closer together in the way that they interact and the way that they work um, and even um, the way that they lobby in particular. Um, and I cover that to some extent in the paper when it comes to um, elections and uh, political lobbying and trying to get certain laws that are um, you know, favorable, favorable for both prosecutors and police passed. I mean, it seems like based on my reading in your paper, at least part of the incentive for police unionization, it sounds like part of it was kind of traditional labor issues, but it seems like at least part of the incentive for unionization was to better protect police officers against measures to increase accountability for them. Exactly. Um, and it seems to me, again, based on my reading of of your paper, that you know, right now we're seeing this move, at least in some primarily urban centers, toward what people have referred to as kind of progressive prosecutors and sort of rethinking the role of the prosecutor and increasing accountability of prosecutors. I wonder if you could talk about sort of what the progressive prosecutor movement is, where it's coming from, and how kind of rank and file prosecutors are uh, reacting to political figures coming in with these new priorities. You know, I'm heartened by seeing this progressive prosecutor movement, even though I, I'm not exactly into the label as such. Um, you know, I would argue that you can't necessarily be progressive and a prosecutor just be by the nature of the job itself. Um, but, you know, for purposes of this interview and even for the paper, that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I, I call them reformist prosecutors. Some people call them progressive prosecutors, you know. 
some people refer to them as being less carceral. Um, I think we're all referring to the same thing to some extent. It's something that, you know, prosecutors are at least making some sort of moves away from um, the status quo. And you do see these prosecutors proliferating a bit more in your large urban centers, which is an exciting thing to see. Um, You know, recently with um, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, um, Tiffany Caban, who almost won her election um, in Queens, um, you know, the, these prosecutors who are making these big inroads, promising um, less mass incarceration, um, you know, prosecuting non, not prosecuting nonviolent, um, you know, folks generally, um, and having more of a concern for, you know, their communities rather than um, locking people up all the time. Um, and what you see is that with some rank and file prosecutors, um, that has really upset them to a great extent. There's been a lot of work done with regard to um, what prosecutors um, are motivated by in particular, what they identify with. And oftentimes what you see is that prosecutors, you know, they, they have much more of a personal identification with their jobs than other lawyers do. Um, even more than, you know, big firm lawyers or even public defenders. They feel like they are the good guys, that they're putting bad guys away, almost sort of like this superhero complex, I think. And what they see is that when they have a progressive prosecutor stepping in into a leadership role, they get very upset. And for example, you know, in St. Louis, what you saw was that a a number of prosecutors ended up resigning. They just didn't want to work for a progressive prosecutor, in this case, Wesley Bell. Or, you know, they end up getting closer with police and getting tighter with police and wanting to unionize with the police such that they can enjoy those same sorts of protections um, and that same sort of um, umbrella against, I'd argue, accountability that the police get to enjoy. Um, So it's really interesting to see this tension between line prosecutors and elected prosecutors and this really big gulf between um, what both sides think they should be doing and what's really, you know, their job. Yeah, well, I mean, with Black Lives Matter and all other kinds of sort of progressive movements thinking about incarceration and the role of the state in policing various kinds of, you know, activity, um, there's there's been a real concern about, at least as far as I've seen, like police unions sort of protecting abusive officers and so on. I, I mean, to what extent is that a concern, do you think, that prosecutors are feeling in relation to this sort of shift in priorities in the kind of the people running, the the kind of political people running the prosecutor's offices? I mean, do you see that same kind of concern about protecting people from accountability? And to what extent do we have or should we have concerns about accountability uh, among prosecutors? I mean, I think we should have really big concerns about accountability among prosecutors in that um you know, there are already very few mechanisms by which to um, punish the the wayward prosecutor by by which to really correct what they do if they do something wrong. Um, you know, you see at least from both the ABA and the National District Attorneys Association, they have these rules that they promulgate with regard to standards for the prosecution function um, that are admittedly from both organizations um, aspirational at best. 
Um, so you, what you see is that, you know, the prosecutor is given a lot of discretion, a lot of free reign to essentially do what they want. Um, oftentimes not really having to pay for it in any way, unless someone could actually prove that, yes, they are engaging in some sort of, you know, intentional malfeasance, which is always very difficult to do. Um, but, you know, I think that we should be really concerned in that, you know, you can find lots of examples of prosecutors who really try to duck accountability. They try to cover up for other people. Um, in in the paper, in particular, I look at two very recent um, law school graduates from St. Louis, once again, um, who actually covered up um, an incident where a police officer rather savagely beat um, a suspect. Um, this was a suspect that was caught with the officer's um, daughter's stolen credit card. Um, the suspect said that he had found it on the sidewalk or something like that, which, you know, is pretty plausible. You know, stuff like that happens. Um, but this police officer, you know, really severely beat this poor man and ended up joking about it on a conference call with some of these prosecutors um, who then ended up covering up the details of the incident and not admitting it to, you know, supervisors. And they let this poor suspect get, um, get charged with um, fleeing the scene or fleeing from an officer, even though that had never happened. So, you know, I know that a lot of these stories, of course, they're, they're anecdotal, um, but, you know, when we have such a, such a localized criminal justice system throughout the United States, it's very difficult to collect massive amounts of data. Um, but, you know, I think just even seeing these examples shows us how things can go wrong, shows us the risk of these quote relationships between prosecutors and police and really, you know, it demonstrates for us why we should be really concerned about prosecutors and police working together so closely. Mm. Well, in your paper, you have this great quote from Justice Jackson, where he says, the qualities of a good prosecutor are as elusive and impossible to define as those of market gentlemen, and those who need to be told but not understand it anyway. A sensitiveness to fair play and sportsmanship is perhaps the best protection against the abuse of power. And the citizen's safety lies in the prosecutor who tempers zeal with human kindness, who seeks truth and not victims, who serves the law and not factional purposes, and who approaches his task with humility. And that, I mean, really, that strikes me as like the 1940s equivalent of saying what we need is progressive prosecutors. And right. that's what prosecutors should be like. Um, I mean, to what extent does the sort of backlash among prosecutors against the kind of progressive prosecutor or reformist prosecutor movement reflect a sort of lack of acceptance of that sort of professional ethical model of, of what the prosecutor's role is? I mean, I, th I think it shows a great lack of acceptance, you know, in this sort of um, – this sort of perpetual denial as to what I argue they should be doing. And, you know, I think Justice Jackson would actually agree with me on this, where, you know, you, you are supposed to be sensitive to fair play. You are supposed to be, um, you know, a minister of justice and not necessarily just trying to, you know, score notches on a belt where you're convicting people and locking them up. Um, but what you see is that so many prosecutors get so caught up, I think, in this really strange culture um, where, you know, they're putting away bad guys. They're, they're the good guys. They're the ones who win, you know, and, and they're used to winning all the time. Um, and 
you know, it makes me think of a, a story that a friend related to me in Oklahoma in particular, um, where every time someone would win a jury trial, they would get, a, I think, a small little figurine of like a bulldog or something like that, like some ridiculous old trial bulldog um, that they would display in their office. And then after they got a certain number of those, they got like a really large one. You know, it's almost like playing skee-ball or something like that. Like, um, you know, once I I amass this number, then I could trade this in for a bigger prize. And I think there's a really big sort of denial amongst prosecutors that's like, look, if you're engaging this sort of behavior, no, you are not the good guy. Um, You're really doing this, you know, due to your own personal motivations, uh, you know, really aggrandizing yourself and sort of buying into this idea that, hey, you know, my job is to convict people and put them away. And that's what I'm here for. Um, and if you look at what even just the standards that the NDAA promulgates, you know, the National District Attorneys Association is this large, you know, essential, essentially a lobbying group for prosecutors. It's headquartered in Alexandria, Virginia. And part of what they do is they not only do they lobby, but they also promulgate rules for prosecutors to follow. Um, And oftentimes these rules run very counter to the ABA model rules and the ABA rules for the prosecution function. And this happens because these prosecutors with the NDAA, they actually believe that the the ABA is a left-wing lobbying organization. They've said this and that no one in the ABA can possibly understand what it's like to be a prosecutor. So again, prosecutors strongly identify with their jobs. They think that they're very special. They think that no one else could possibly understand what it's like to be them. Um, So I think this strange sort of insular culture is something that we really need to um, be leery of, that we need to figure out how to dismantle, that we really need to figure out how to fight against. Yeah, I mean, it struck me that it seems at least possible that this increasing, as it seems, solidarity of police and prosecutors to the point of prosecutors sort of wanting to unionize in conjunction with police unions, maybe like isn't so much the necessarily the problem itself so much as reflective of an underlying shift in the way that our the kind of prosecutors and our justice system writ large uh, thinks of its role in relation to the prosecution of of criminal justice. It, it, in a sense, like it almost seems like the rank and file are rebelling against the supposed sort of political representatives who are are at least in theory telling them what to do. I, absolutely, I agree and. You know, I, I had to chuckle to myself when you, you know, were talking about this solidarity, because when I think of solidarity, I think of, you know, something very different, you know, that it, it signifies to me, you know, like, I, like real, like, labor unions and everything and um, real, real solidarity between people who have, you know, been, you know, historically underrepresented or um, mm. abused, essentially, economically. Um, but, you know, I think you know, we have to start getting ready to see this backlash. And I really do think that these efforts toward unionization with, you know, police or even any other sort of tighter relationship with them, it's very much a symptom, like you said, not necessarily the problem. I'm not even necessarily saying that, okay, police unions in and of themselves are so bad or that prosecutor unions are in and of themselves 
so bad. If they were focusing on normal labor union concerns, things like long hours, working conditions, stuff like that. Um, the problem is that what you see is that they're being used as a mechanism to flummox criminal justice reform. Um, for example, um, in California, um, police and labor unions came together. Um, no, police and prosecutor unions, excuse me. You know, they came together to try to stop um, the passage of a law that would get rid of the felony murder rule, for example. Um, I think that that goes beyond the purview of what you should be doing as a labor union. Um, that's more just looking at criminal criminal law doctrine and trying to influence that for the entire state. Um, so that's more of what I have a problem with, with the, these um, with these relationships that are getting more and more entangled and more and more entrenched. Mm-hmm. Well, so in closing, Mabel, um, for people who are invested in and care about criminal justice reform, um, what should we think about this development and and what should we do about it? I mean, it seems like in in some ways, the increasing unionization is more of a symptom than a cause. Mm-hmm. Um and and I wonder what 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 people should do with that. Like, how should we think about this symptom, and what's the solution? You know, and I, I appreciate you really looking at this as sort of a you know a symptom of a larger, perhaps a larger illness here. In in that, um, you know, the, the, I think there really are some very serious cultural concerns that we should have with regard to what's going on in prosecutors' offices and police and police officers, um, you know, and how they're interrelating with each other. Um, I really do envision a very different role for the prosecutor based on, um, you know, what the ABA sort of envisions a prosecutor to be, a, a minister of justice, um, or what, you know, that quote that we were talking about with um, from Justice Jackson, um, where, you know, prosecutors should really be much more concerned with doing justice for their communities and doing justice for their um, constituents. And, you know, something that my paper looks at is um, sort of a public health approach to prosecutorial culture change, you know, as a potential intervention. And I think, you know, prosecutors, if you hear some oinking in the background, that's my Boston Terrier mo. Um, So excuse me. Um, you know, prosecutors, again, they think themselves as being very special and very unique. And there's another um, another industry, another sort of group of people who have historically thought this, and those are um, physicians. Um, they have been known historically to think of themselves as self-important and being self-righteous. Um, and that has occasionally, at least in the medical field, also led to poor judgment calls and um, error and misconduct. Um, so what's interesting is that there has been a really big public health push to fight against what's termed this normalization of deviance. Um, and this normal, you know, normalization of deviance meaning, um, when, you know, maybe when someone or a group of people in an organization does something wrong, um, it, you know, it, it's sort of like, Oh, you know, that's sort of normal. We're used to that. You know, that's what happens. These are the shortcuts you take and the like. Um, but that's not okay to have that happen. Um, we shouldn't be so success oriented. You know, if you're a prosecutor, you know, that might translate into, um, not being as, um, oriented toward getting convictions or winning trials or something like that. And something that we could really look at doing, I think, is um, 
trying to change the culture and sort of the way that the medical field has when it comes to um, how prosecutors work together and how prosecutors work with other people in their offices, like, you know, um, legal assistants and paralegals and everything, um, you know, coming together and reviewing periodically um, where some things went wrong, you know, where maybe some, you know, ethical near misses may have happened and how to, how to prevent that in the future, um, you know, and having prosecutors stop really identifying with their roles as much and actually admitting that, yes, we're human. Sometimes we make mistakes. How do we actually move on from that and learn to be better? Um, so I think there's a lot to learn from different industries, um, particularly the medical field. And, you know, hopefully I have the chance to come back and talk about that a little bit later with a, a future draft, looking at that more in depth. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Maybell. It's always a pleasure to hear your voice on the quote unquote radio. And uh, <laughs> I think Mo deserves a treat. I think he does too. Thanks for having me, Brian. Get you down, sure get you down, hanging around and fooling about, sure get you down, if you hang around and fooling about too long, police and high tags coming riding down, riding down, riding down, police and high tags coming riding down, and you know you don't want to go. Hanging around the skin game, sure get you down, sure get you down. Hanging around the skin game, sure get you down. If you hang around the skin game too long, police and I will come riding down, riding down, riding down. Police and I will come riding down, and you know you don't want. Thirty days in the jailhouse will sure get you down, sure get you down. Thirty days in the jailhouse will sure get you down if you stay in the jailhouse too long. Guards in the roadside will come carrying you down, carrying you down. Guards in the roadside will come carrying you down, and you know you don't want to go. 